Hey there, Omaha. Welcome into another episode of Restaurant Hoppin'. I'm bringing you a guy who I think is considered by many to be one of the top up-and-coming chefs and maybe even one of the top chefs already in the city of Omaha. His name is Kane Atkinson. I actually had him on once several months ago uh, with his brother Colin. We, we talked about the Moots Pizza truck, but this time we're going to focus specifically on his career and, and his concept, Kano. Kane, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me, Dan, and uh, happy to be here. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm super blessed that you chose to give me your time. Like, I really appreciate that. Um, let, let's just dive right into Kano. I think it's it's a dining experience is something that might not be super familiar to a lot of Omahans, but everyone who I know or the articles that I've read about it who has experienced this is just like, this thing is fantastic. It's really fun. It's so like... It's just so different, and this is a pop-up kind of dinner series that you started in 2016 in San Francisco. You've done locations uh, in in several places in Omaha, including Yoshitomo, Block 16. I think Archetype Coffee is on that list. It's been throughout the United States as well. Just kind of if you had the opportunity to describe Kano in your own words, how would you describe it to someone who hasn't experienced a Kano dinner? Yeah, um, so for... Kano to me, it's a uh, it's it originally started as an expression of Nebraska tradition and cuisine and um, traditions essentially that I grew up with um, here in Nebraska. And when I originally started it, it was a way to showcase exactly that in San Francisco. Um, you know, in a city that was so cluttered and oversaturated with every other concept, um, I kind of wanted to do something that was different or stood out somehow. And I think a lot of people still wonder what Nebraska tradition and cuisine is, and I'm still learning it as I go myself. Um, but I think that was, you know, the initial um, thought behind it. And then once I returned back home um, after my travels, I was like, well, it kind of seems redundant to do Nebraska in Nebraska. Um, and we do, we still try to focus as much as we can on seasonality and uh, the micro seasons in Nebraska. But I think more so now we try to bring in that influence from uh, where I've worked um, outside of Omaha and Nebraska as well. So, mm-hmm. And now I'm just fascinated, and maybe there's not a great answer to this because you said you're still working through this yourself, but when you originally wanted to introduce Nebraska traditions and cuisine, I'm just curious as to what that means because I think a lot of people, you know, if they were just asked that, they'd say, oh, beef, mm-hmm. corn, maybe runzas or something yeah. like that. Like what was your original idea to introduce San Francisco to what Nebraskans eat? Yep, and – Honestly, I mean, to kind of be whimsy, we did have all three of those on the first menu. <laughs> yeah. um, so, and it was funny because the original Ruth's rolls were actually in the form of a runza. Oh, uh, really? At the dinner, yeah. So, and it was funny because, you know, out of, I always joke, like, out of all the time and energy that I put into these dinners, those always steal the show. Mm-hmm. And so it was funny, like, after that first dinner, I mean, it was a... I'm still really proud of that dinner, and I still feel like that was maybe one of the best menus we've ever done. Um, but it was just funny because everybody talked about the Runza afterwards. <laughs> and, I mean, just imagine, like, my mom's dinner rolls with cabbage and beef and onions in there. It was oh, yeah. That'd pretty stupid fantastic. good. Um, but, yeah, when, you know, originally when we introduced it, uh, I think a lot of people just have that, you know, kind of outlook towards Nebraska is just corn and beef. And that's it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we kind of try to make fun of that. And, you know, we always have a beef dish on um, when we're outside of Omaha. And we always have a corn dish um, even here in Omaha. So it's kind of to, you know, give that a subtle nudge. And then, um, yeah, other things, you know, where we have a lot of war history in Omaha. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we there's a lot of things invented for soldiers um, like the uh, – uh, they have like these little war cookies that they're called Nebraskets that we kind of made a homage to at the first dinner. We haven't really ran those since, but um, you know, there's just a lot of little things that we kind of pay homage to and, and uh, focus on. And also, you know, we had uh, Dan Morgan send us Morgan ranch beef, mm-hmm. um, which is internationally known. Um, we had, you know, Shadowbrook cheese and stuff like that on, during some of those dinners. So it was really cool just to showcase producers and farmers that I've worked with for, you know, since I started cooking in San Francisco and then having people's reactions to those products being like, whoa, you know, this is great. And so that was really cool. Now, I I found a quote um, 
that you used to describe Kano a, a while back, and you said, we perfectly chose the tasting menu format as a way of showing guests that dining can be an artful experience the same way going to a play or orchestra can be entertaining. I love that quote because I totally agree with that. I, I, I think that there's something about a, a great tasting menu that just goes so far beyond food and it becomes, like like you said in that quote, more of an experience than just a meal. Can you kind of expand on that, especially for people who haven't really done the tasting menu experience, just why that style and why that format can be so transportive? Yeah, Um you know, when I go to a restaurant, I love just sitting. I don't like making decisions. I'm probably the most indecisive person there is. So, uh, you know, like when I go to a restaurant, I love when it's just like, can you guys just take care of us? You know, mm-hmm. and just because um, they know it's best. They know it's fresh. They know it's on the menu and they know what they're most excited about. And um, I had an old chef kind of describe it as like, you don't go to a dentist and tell them how to clean your teeth. You know, these people have been in their industry. They've been practicing their craft since day one they go to trade shows they um they they dedicate their entire life to this exact thing Mm -hmm. and uh or craft and so for me um you know i kind of with food i i like doing that as well where it's like we you know you if i give you a menu at the beginning of the meal you're going to look at one of the courses and be like "Ooh, that sounds weird or i don't know how that's going to be and then you're automatically going to have like these assumptions that like oh that's I'm not going to like that or, you know, and that, that's why we purposely give you the menu at the end of the meal um, and kind of, you know, have each course be that sense of, you know, what's next and that mm-hmm. anticipation. Um, and so we like to build off that. And, um, you know, I think our job in the industry is we want to entertain you. We want to make sure you have the better, you know, at Kano specifically, like we want to make sure you have the best, most memorable evening of your life. And, so for us, you know, we like to just kind of, you know, have a theatrical experience and, you know, see the servers, you know, gracefully, you know, bouncing through the, you know, the dining room and the cooks walking out the food. And um, so, yeah, I think that's kind of why we, we chose that style is that so we can essentially do what we want to do uninterrupted. I mean, we accommodate to certain dietary restrictions and we try to do our best, but, um, you know, we try to also encourage diners to you know tear down all their walls and just be open Mm -hmm. now i have not yet had the pleasure of experiencing a cano dinner it's something i very much want to do in the future i haven't had that experience yet but i've seen lots of photos Mm -hmm. i've read lots of descriptions i mean the food is just beautiful like it's not just a a plate of you know like here's a runza for example like you said earlier i mean it's just it's so well plated everything is so like artistically placed it's something different than you've like ever even seen before Mm -hmm. and I'm just so curious what is it like as a chef to be able to bring out one of those plates where you're giving a diner something completely new and set it in front of them and kind of like see that look of wonder as they're trying to digest with their eyes Mm -hmm. what they're even looking at and just kind of like watch the emotions as they just take everything in yeah uh you know for us, I mean, that's kind of what we live for, you know, is like that moment, mm-hmm. you know, and I mean, you put yourself through a lot of stress and, um, you know, just conceptualization of what the menu is going to be and, you know, just for that specific moment. And I think for me, it's really humbling, um, you know, especially like we've had a lot of like really well-known chefs and like, um, you know, past previous mentors and stuff come and eat my dinners. And it's really, it's just weird to like sit there and be like, wow, I've looked up to that chef for like years you know and then to see them like sit down and like really and like truly enjoy your food you know and have like you know they'll have their constructive criticism but they'll also be like you know really that was really cool you know like that to me it's just um it kind of makes it all come you know full circle and makes me you know extremely happy but um I just love having you know guests in and to see that moment and that reaction of them trying to um deconstruct like what it actually is happening and then have them also have that like oh I didn't I totally like didn't guess that so yeah I originally wanted to ask you like what a sample menu looked like but I think even going back to your answer a couple minutes ago where you said you don't purposely give out the menus beforehand Mm -hmm. because you want people to see it before they read it and make assumptions about it I don't know if that's fair but there is one dish that I want to ask you about or one item I suppose that I want to ask you about that I believe 
has been on every Kano menu since the conception, and that is the cornflake. <laughs> and I know it's incredibly simple. I know it's probably one of the easiest things that you do, but there's a reason that it stays on your menu. Can you kind of give a description of that piece of food and, and how that is the one thing that survived every menu on something that traditionally changes quite a bit? Yeah. Um, to describe it perfectly, it's a surprise in one bite. Um, and I, I'll leave it at that. But the story behind it is, uh, and it has to be one bite. You know, every dinner we do, there's always one guest who tries to bite into it, like take two bites, and it never works out great, and you always have to bring another one. But, yeah, it's a, it's a surprise <laughs> in one bite. Um, but the story behind it was, you know, a lot of what we do at, with the Kano menus is we try to really just hammer nostalgia. And, um, you know, for me, uh, the Kano dinners originally, you know, you want them to be whimsy and playful and, uh, you know, kind of strike that, that like, oh, this reminds me when I was a kid, you know, because I think instantly you can hit someone emotionally mm -hmm. uh, if you eat something that, like, you remember as a child. And... We've done Kano dinners internationally, um, and I remember talking to some, it was probably my brothers or parents about it, where no matter where you go in life or in the world, is there, everybody's kind of had that memory of cornflakes, mm -hmm. and uh, Kellogg's does have a plant here. And so, and I actually found that out when I was doing my initial research on like what, you know, what is Omaha, you know, cuisine and tradition and what companies do we have here that I think people will remember and stuff like that. And so when I saw Kellogg's, um, I knew instantly I was like, cornflakes, we have to do something with cornflakes, you know. And I think everybody in this world's had a bowl of cornflakes as, at least once as a child. And so for me, it's the last bite on the menu. It's um, been on every menu since we've started. And, you know, again, it's the, like, biggest surprise ever because you pick this thing up, it feels kind of heavy, um, you, it's sitting on a bowl of rocks. You don't know which one's the rock and which one's the cornflake bite. And then you eat it, and you know instantly everybody's face is like whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. And then whoa, you know. And, and that to me, I think that's like my favorite to watch people eat that bite. And it's funny when people have had it before, and then they bring like a friend to a dinner. They, you know, they sit there in anticipation of like, oh, let's watch their face when they eat it, and um. And I think it's one of those items that I think people leave and just are like, wow, that was really unique and special. So That's kind of the perfect cap to, yep. to the meal. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just like the overall story in one bite to, you know, that last impression. So mm -hmm. Now, I wanted to ask you just about the concept of doing pop-up dinners as opposed to, you know, I think when most people think of chefs, they think of the traditional restaurant. Mm -hmm. They've got the brick and mortar. And now I know that you've thought about going that route. Mm -hmm. You told me uh, the last time that you were on that before the whole pandemic hit, you mm -hmm. guys had a lease in hand. You were about yeah. ready to sign it. And, and obviously, you know, a lot of things have changed since yeah. then uh, for better and worse. Mostly for worse, but yeah. <laughs> uh, what, what is the appeal of the, of the pop-up to you? And why did you kind of settle on that concept is what you wanted to focus on? You know, I think the pop-up, um, I honestly, I, when we first start or when I first started Kano, I don't think I ever thought I would still be doing these right now. I thought, I, I mean, my goal was to open a restaurant. Um, you know, unfortunately, I think with lease agreements and um, other things like that, it makes it, you know, that's a lot of money. It's a big investment. Um, and, you know, we have always said that, like, we don't want angel investors. We don't want people who aren't inside the family to own more of our business than we do. Um, and, you know, like last like you said, last time we talked, um, we had a lease. I mean, we had it in hand. We were ready to go. And we were extremely excited about it. Had all of our funding ready. We had the business plan on, like, just dialed in. I mean, everything was right there, right in front of your face. All we had to do is sign. And, unfortunately, um, we had some family members fall ill that we had to be bedside with. And, it turned out to be the biggest blessing in disguise. Mm -hmm. um, and so we, we actually never went forth with the lease, you know, pandemic shutdown hit. And we thought, hey, we're just going to wait this out and see what happens. And then here we are months later, still wondering when this is going to end. But I think the beauty of the pop-up at the same time is that we're able to, you know, just like the menu where there's no barriers, there's, I mean, we stay within a frame, but if we want to do, 
a Japanese inspired dinner at Yoshitomo. Like I love Japanese cuisine. I've trained in Japan. I love showcasing that kind of style, but we can do that at Yoshitomo. If I want to do more of a French style or, you know, more of that Italian rustic style, we do that at block 16 or, Mm -hmm. you know, if we really kind of try to adapt to where our space is. And I think it's really been a good, um, practice for us, you know, as we do these dinners around town that we're able to adapt to wherever our space is and kind of have it fit there, that chef's, um, business as well. So for me, I, I really like the pop-up. I wish we had a brick and mortar, but I just, I think things happen for a reason. And, um, honestly, I'm truly thankful we didn't get sucked into a lease that we can't, you know, afford right mm-hmm. now. So, and, and obviously that's still something that could change in the future. Mm-hmm. You never know what's going to come, but you guys are making it work for the time yep. being. And I think that's, that's what you need to do. Now, obviously the term pop-up, that's a very big umbrella. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of different pop-ups. There are pop-ups kind of what you do, which are more of a fine dining style. There's things like a dandelion pop-up where, you know, it hosts a different chef every week. I know Night Owl hosted a bunch of pop-ups where just one chef would come in. I think it was every Sunday at the beginning of the pandemic and, and serve stuff out of this on the street. So obviously mm-hmm. the term pop-up can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But at least in my eyes, it seems like it's kind of the importance of the pop-up is growing mm-hmm. in the culinary scene. How have you seen it evolve over the last couple of years just no, p- pandemic aside not thinking about that not taking that into equation but just in in terms of the overall culinary scene culinary or cano growing or pop-ups in general Oh, pop-ups yeah i mean i think it's a it's a great way for someone who doesn't have the resources or um the financial backing or a brick and mortar um to really just try their feet at it. You know, I think to just jump into a restaurant, I mean, we have learned so much just about what it takes to operate through these pop-ups that I think if we would have opened a restaurant when we initially wanted to, we would have been so, so, so like, I mean, we would have gotten through it, but it would have been a a very, very tough learning lesson. Yeah. 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 And so I think for a pop-up, it's just a great, like we're going to provide you a runway with, where you don't have to think about like hand soap in the bathrooms. You don't have to think about paper towels or mm-hmm. um, I don't know, cleaning supplies, things like that. Where like as a chef, you're like, oh, just the food, mm-hmm. the menu, you know. But then you're not thinking about like you know silverware, linens, you know, things that it's just they're already in place at a brick and mortar that you just you know as a chef that you want to do your own thing you kind of forget about these little things Mm -hmm. and then you start doing pop-ups and then remembering like oh yeah someone just said the soap in the bathroom's out you're like oh shit i kind of forgot about like (laughs) that's something you have to think about too um so not only does it kind of give you know a young individual just a nice runway but it gives them kind of like a no risk entry to what it takes and i think it's also great because it does provide that individual, um, you know, an introduction to hopefully maybe an, an investor that believes in them and that can, you know, help them open or it provides them, it networks them into a different crowd. And I think, you know, when you start building your own brand, I think you start taking on a little bit more, um, it becomes more personal, you know, you Mm -hmm. care about it a little differently than the place you work at, you know, it makes you, take a little bit more pride and, you know, attention to detail and things like that. So I think for me, it, it grows the industry, if anything, you know, when you see uh, Danny Flores, for instance, you know, he does his pop-up. Um, I know that he goes back to work at the boiler room the next day a little stronger than he did before that dinner, you know, because I think he starts looking at it as a whole of like, well, how's service happening now? You know, are the servers, you know, dropping food at the right table or that you just – you have a bigger, broader vision of the whole picture instead of just your station mm-hmm. at that point. And I think that's crucial, you know, and I think it helps grow every restaurant, you know. So. Absolutely. Yeah, it just it kind of expands the birth of people who, you know, have the potential to to open a restaurant mm-hmm. or to be promoted to, you know, a chef de cuisine, executive chef, stuff like that, because they're aware of more, I think, um, you know, so much of what you just said, I think, echoes a lot of what 
Anthony Caniglia Chovy yeah, that Alcarant yeah. said uh, when he was on a couple months ago when he got promoted. It was just like, yeah, all of a sudden, yeah, somebody has to order the silverware. Somebody has to like make sure that there's paper towels in the bathroom. Like yeah. all this stuff that he didn't have to think about before, yeah. you now have to be aware of. And the more people in the scene that are thinking like that, mm-hmm. I think the stronger the community is as a whole. Right. And it might not be your responsibility going back to work the next day, but it's that responsibility, I think, is just kind of lingers in the back of your head of like, oh, I'll just look at it every once in a while and see, like, you know, how's it going? And uh, so, and Chovy's fing solid as well. So, <laughs> yeah. I love Chovy. He's a really good guy. At he least, is. yeah, from what I've seen, he's, he's pretty awesome. So, I want to kind of get back into your beginnings with cooking and kind of understand why you went this route and how you became a chef. And I know last time you kind of, and I want you to mention this again, but the really cool family uh, tradition you guys have at Christmas, Mm -hmm. just how important was cooking to your family growing up and how did that influence the path that you ended up going on? Yeah. Um, So, you know, like we had talked in the last podcast with uh, Moots is that, um, you know, when we were little um, from an early age, like, our family on Thanksgiving, we'd all sit around and then we'd all write down a country that we wanted to um, highlight for Christmas and we'd throw them in a hat. We'd pick like, I think three or four. And then from there, we would have one person draw from the four. And then we would have that country that we would, you know, theme our Christmas off of. And we would dress up and exchange gifts that that country would, you know, exchange and cook their like, holiday meals and they're kind of staple meals and I think to me early on like learning how to make sushi you know granted it wasn't it's no David Utterback sushi by any means but it was one of those experiences of you know you get to try your hand at it and you kind of get to mess up and laugh and you're with family it's it's a fun time still and you know, so we would do, you know, Japan, India, China. Um, I think by, like, year five or six of that, I think me and my brothers were like, can we just have an American Christmas? Like, we want prime rib for uh-huh. dinner. We want, you know, a country ham or whatever. And But I think, you know, as we've grown up, we kind of look back on those times, and it, I think it has really had a huge influence on all three of the brothers, um, especially with how we view food. And – I think, you know, that alone, I mean, that aside too, like my grandma, I remember like, you know, she would always, she does this like chicken and noodles course or like dish that it's super rustic. I mean, there's, those noodles are not perfect looking, but like nothing beats them, you know? And it's funny, like I remember hand making noodles with her and then we'd have my grandpa Josh's little cane that we would drape all the noodles over and let them dry. And it's just little things like that. Um, that I'm super fortunate that we had those memories and that opportunity as young kids to kind of learn cooking like that. And, uh, you know, and then I think growing up, going to out and, you know, traveling, you know, and realizing Mm -hmm. how much food can bring people together, um, I think it's really inspired me to cook and pursue it. You know, as uh, I remember in Japan, we were, it was like two in the morning, three in the morning on a Sunday, and the chef at Nihon Ryori Ryugen, where I was um, apprenticing, the chef or like he didn't speak any English. He refused to speak English, and but Naomi, she would the like host or I think it was like his wife. I'm not really sure like how it was. I didn't ask yeah. questions, but she would come back to the kitchen and say, "Kane, uh, chef would like to take you out for." Uh, out to eat after service tonight if you'd like to pick somewhere and I always remember feeling like so honored because like this dude's an or you know he's an ambassador for Japanese cuisine I mean he's like top five chefs in the world and then here he is like wanting to take this kid from Omaha out for whatever he wants to eat and I remember I was like oh yakiniku which is like just grilled beef you know and they do it in a bunch of different ways and he he took me out and I remember sitting there and I would always try to drink as he, like, I always try to keep up with him. And this guy, Dan, I shit you not, like, the, he would just chug beers and then, like, not, I mean, just never, you would never see anything different. You wouldn't different. even know. Yeah. yeah. And 
I remember I was like, oh, I got this. I'm going to, like, outdrink him. And then there's, like, a point where I'm sitting there and, like, kind of, like, internally giggling because I'm like, why am I sitting here right now? And why are we, like, the whole night you're just laughing. And uh-huh. you, I look back, I'm like, what do we even talk about? Like, we couldn't even talk, you know. But uh-huh. for some reason you're having, like, the best time of your life. And, I mean, the main focus there is food, you know, is that that brought us together. And it's cool that, you know, no other really situation would have, gotten me in that situation other than food so um yeah I just think you know little memories like that always kind of you know spark that wanting to cook and well I love I mean just in our brief time in this conversation we brought up memories so many times already you know whether it's that memory of that meal there whether it's you and your you know your family having those traditions and creating memories whether it's you creating memories for for other people with you know these theatrical dinners almost like I I just I love the concept of food being more than food and I Mm -hmm. love people that just appreciate you know that food isn't just calories like it's something that brings us all together and connects us in a way that I don't know if there's really much else out there that does in the same way that food does Mm -hmm. well and it's I mean it showcases culture and a time and place and I think people hold their culture really you know close to them and I think certain traditions that get passed down are, you know, normally centered around food. And uh, I remember, like, this one grandma in Italy, was she would say, like, you know, we never had, like, the, the best quality, but we had time. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it really speaks to, like, Italian cooking, I feel like, as well, where it's like, if you have enough time, you don't need the best ingredients. You don't need much. You just really... You know, and that creates a lot of you know, memories in itself. So, when was the first time outside of your home where you kind of experienced that and started to feel the pull to the kitchen because of the experience that you could create? I think, um, I think boiler room. I mean, that was my first. I was fifteen. Mm-hmm. Might have just turned sixteen, I guess. Um, I remember it was like right. It would have been 2010, I think, is when they opened, and I remember I was like going around applying for all these jobs, trying to like get a cooking job. And my uncle like told me like, "Oh yeah, my uh, my brother works down there, and you should go in there and try to apply." And I remember walking in and like, uh, you know, I saw these guys. You know, it's a gorgeous space. I mean, first and foremost, I think at that time I was like, "Whoa, I've never seen a restaurant like this." And then. Um, right when I, you know, I went in there and I was like, Hey, you know, I'd like an application. And I remember it was Ben Jordan was the sous chef at the time. And he was flaying a fish and he like takes his gloves off and he's like, all right, well, give me one sec. And he comes out and he's like, well, we don't really have a, an application per se, but, um, you know, what are you looking to do really? And it was kind of funny. Like we kind of went back and forth about, you know, what I wanted and all this. And then, um, I remember at the time, uh, so Paul was still there and he was on the phone and we were outside and he was like, well, what do you, you're like, you here for money or knowledge? Like, what, what's your, why are you here? And I remember at the time I was like, well, I'm like 16. I don't think money's going to really, it's probably going to get me in trouble more than anything. So, you know, I'm like to just learn uh-huh. uh, at that point. And uh, so I started off as like doing an unpaid internship or stage there on Wednesdays and Bryce Colton was still working there and Jose um, was there and I remember going in and I just had really never seen like products that saw I mean they got like the coolest products you know they had all these different farmers coming in with these vegetables and you know whole animals and I mean, it was a really cool place and I mean it had this like kind of unique smell that I remember and um, I just remember like my first time like seeing it in like a production setting and I think that's really where it kind of that was like the that kind of big I don't know it was like a weird connection that I was like damn this is like what I want to do and uh I think my first job was like peeling a 30 pound bag of fava beans for countless hours Mm -hmm. but I think just that connection to that was I'd never seen fava beans before that you know I think it was just a really um it was a cool, I think that's where it kind of all began, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then 
a- after that, that kind of led you into you went to Metro Community College. Mm-hmm. You, went, you went through the program there, and then you you really got out and you saw the world. And you you mentioned already, you know, that you w- went to Japan. You spent some time in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. You've been all over the place, and I feel like that's kind of a common thread with a lot of. Omaha chefs and that they did go somewhere else usually a lot of different places before yeah. before they came back why did you think it was experience to get out and or why did you think it was important excuse me to get out and experience things outside of the city like as cool as the boiler room is mm-hmm. you needed to get out and see other stuff why was that important to you well so I remember it actually it was uh Piero um from well, now WD. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Katrina. Yeah. So he, um, that was funny because I remember like the first, I always, I mean, I you'd see kind of that intensity in the kitchen. You're like, oh, I want in on that. And then I remember Piero, Piero used to, Piero's calmed down a lot. Piero used to be a way different guy um, like back in the day. Really? Uh, he was a, f- sorry, he was a beast. He, that kid was, uh, he is a little spitfire and I remember he was like, you think you can cook? And I was like, sure. And he was like, well, then grab the sticks. And I was like, all right. And so I like, he was trying to explain to me how the order system worked. I had no idea what was going on. And then he was kind of just telling me, like, oh, pass this over. Now pass this over. Pass this over. And chef asked, you know, who seasoned this? And I was like, I did. He's like, it's really good. And then, like, I he goes, let it go in one ear and right out the other. And I, like, kept passing stuff over. And then it just from then on out went downhill because I got all like cocky and I was like, Oh, I got this now. And Uh then it was just like big disaster. But, um, so Piero really was kind of like the first dude to really let me like, you know, try my hands at it. And then Piero back in the day, uh, he would go and stage like all over the country a lot. I mean, that dude was always in a different state. I mean, he worked at the boiler room, but he was always going to like New York to go to Liberta Den or, um, I mean, he'd go to Philly to go work at Vetri or, you know, I mean, he just was all over. And I remember, you know, I really liked to travel. And so I thought it was really neat how he got to do that. And then he would come back full of all these new ideas. And Boiler Room at the time was very, like, based off of um, kind of the cooks that were there. You know, there was really no, like, prep list. If you wanted to try roasting a carrot a different way, go for it. It just has to be good, and then you have to be ready to – have a plan B if it didn't work out right. And so I thought that was really neat that he would come back, have all these cool recipes, all these new techniques and all that. And you could see that he was kind of slowly becoming like, they weighed on him a little bit more as far as the menu goes. And so I always kind of wanted that experience of like, I want to have more, I want like the team to kind of lean on me more as like ideas and new techniques and kind of a teacher in a sense. And I was still pretty young at the time, and so I went to uh, my first one ever was Blue Stem, down in Kansas City, and you know again I was like my first time where my dad's like, yeah, you can go to a different state by yourself, or you know like you can drive down there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so Jesse Becker, who's the master sommelier at the Boiler Room at the time, um, <laughs> he said, send me your resume and I'll uh, I'll forward it to a couple places that I think you would be a good fit at. Send him my resume. Got a, a very, very, very direct email back of like, this is shit. Like, this is, <laughs> you need to be embarrassed of this. Like, it was, he ripped me apart pretty good. And then uh, ended up actually getting me a um, an internship down there for a week. And then uh, it was really cool because I think at that point I realized that, you know, I went in there really intimidated, super nervous. And then like you start working with these guys and you're like, wow, these dudes are just like the boiler room staff. You know, they're, they like to go drink after work or, you know, they're, they're just humans as well. Mm -hmm. And, but they really love cooking as well. And so, you know, I, I tried to pick up as much stuff as I could there. Um, and I remember Piero would always tell me like, if they don't offer you a job at the end of it, it's a, it's a failure. So like, make sure you always get a job offer before you come back. And, Mm -hmm. uh, they, it was funny. I remember Joe West, the chef de cuisine at the time, like pulled me in the back alley and was like, Hey, you know, you kind of look into like, you want to stay down here? You want to move down here? Like, we're, we'd love to have you on the team. And oh, I was wow. like, oh, I, I wish I could. But, you know, I, I still had braces at the time. And I was like, you know, my orthodontics, uh, you know, I got to get these off first and all that. And so that was a really cool, I think at that moment, what really kind of sparked me that y- you can go to a different city and do it. And um, after that, I went to my first time to San Francisco. 
um, I went and worked at this restaurant in San Mateo, and I remember the chef offered me a job, and I think anybody who goes to San Francisco immediately just falls in love with the place, and after he offered me a job, I was like, yep, I'm going to San Francisco, and I remember, so I accepted the job, I told my dad I was going to go there, and he's like, all right, and then like two days before I was going to move, he's like, you're not going, and I was like, what, you know, like, mm-hmm. you were so cool about it, and I think that's more what shocked me than anything was my dad was like, all right, you're going to move to San Francisco, go for it, and then two days before, he was like, you're not ready, you're not going, and I was like, okay, you know, like, I was kind of like, oh, I'm I'm screwed, but, um, and, you know, I think through all those experiences, you know, and then I went abroad and all over, but I think more than anything, it was just, it was really cool to see that, you know, when you live in Omaha, I think there's kind of this, like, there's a little bit of a humbleness, there's a little bit of, like, maybe I'm not as good as those big city cooks or something, or, you kind of doubt yourself a little bit once you actually get there and you can kind of see that like, Oh, everybody's the same person really deep down. And, um, I think that really, it, I don't know. It was just, it was a cool, unique experience. And then I think, you know, you all have food as a common thread Mm -hmm. and it really does. I mean, it, it's funny to see how that kind of pulls everyone together. And, um, and I, I will say, I think people in the Midwest have a different, work ethic mm-hmm. than most anybody in this world and so I think when you go to other cities people kind of see that instantly and you have this kind of like midwestern charm to you as well that you can literally talk to a wall if you have to and like get to know it and so I think just you put a good work ethic and someone who has like a heart of gold and is willing to you know help out and I think people really admire that and so I think it it kind of takes you a little further than what you initially and like anticipated. So mm-hmm. now the idea of a stage, I think, is just it's something that's very unique to the culinary industry. It's mm-hmm. not something you see in a lot of other professions. Like mm-hmm. if you're an accountant, you're not going to go spend another a week or a month at a different accounting firm and learn a bunch of stuff from there and then right. come back. Like I used to be a sports writer, I couldn't just leave my publication go write for the World Herald for mm-hmm. two weeks and then come back. Like it's so unique to to kitchen life, what what is it? And you kind of touch on this a little bit, but just to kind of go deeper a little bit, like how can you, what is the importance, I guess, of taking these learnings from all these different experiences, even if they're short, even if they're only a week, only a month, even if you're not getting paid a cent for it, mm-hmm. what is the value long-term in those stages? Well, I think for a restaurant, you know, for a Michelin restaurant in a big city, uh, those stages are make or break. I mean, I always think back on, like, some of those restaurants, and, you know, you'd have, like, 15 stages all there for free. Oh, my god! 10 to yeah. 12 hours a day, and they just all want a job so bad that they're, like, sitting there scrubbing baseboards. I mean, they do, seriously, like, almost humiliating work at times. Just And the chef knows it, too. They're like, oh, yeah, these guys want to be in so bad. Um, go make me a smoothie. You know, I mean, there was this one guy's job at Saison. His only job was to make smoothies and staff meal, and it's like – Jeez, you know, like, why, you uh-huh. know, and then, um, but I think as, like, a young cook's perspective, like, it's kind of free school, you know, I mean, in kitchens, like, you don't need a master's or a doctorate's degree to really shine, you know, honestly, you don't need any schooling, you can be a high school dropout with a recovering drug addict problem, you know, I mean, you can literally be, like, the scum of the earth, and, still succeed in this industry because of the fact that like, it's just, it comes down to like how hard can you work and what can you bring to the table? Like, you know, figuratively, you know, it's like, how can you add to this team? And I think for me, it's just, yeah, it really is. You just want to be like the, and I think it's not everyone in the industry, but there's always like a few people like, I just want to be the best. I want to be, you know, and I kind of like picked that up from Piero, maybe, it might be a burden and a blessing, but I mean, Piero would always be, Oh, it's good, but it can be better. You know? And that mm-hmm. was kind of what he would always tell me. And that really, I mean, it, it, again, it's a burden and a blessing because you push yourself to the, like kind of a weird breaking point, And then you're like, and I have to keep going, you know? So I think those stages, they're valuable in the sense that you can learn the world, you know, you can learn whatever you want and that's up to you. And so it, it kind of just stops when, you want it to, you know, and so those, those internships, I think are just valuable because it, it gives you the knowledge and the, you know, and I feel like knowledge is power in a kitchen with 
knowing what to do, how to be creative, um, and not even just recipe-wise. I mean, you see how certain cooks set up their station differently, mm -hmm. and you go back and you're like, damn, I didn't even think about, like, why did I have that all the way over here when it should just be here? You know, there's certain efficiencies that you learn. Um, you learn how to kind of stay tight in the kitchen. I mean, when you're working with 15 other guys on one table, you learn that you can't have containers there. Like, you have to have your elbows in. You're like – you just want to make as small of a footprint as possible. So just little things that I think just kind of continue to refine, refine, refine. And I, in my opinion, at this level, it's what it's all about is just ultimate refinement. Mm -hmm. So you're getting these opportunities to, to cook all over the world, to have these transformative experiences. You are in San Francisco, you start Kano, you're, you know, having some success there. What was it you know, you're having these grand adventures. What was it that brought you back to to humble Omaha and encouraged you to start doing Kano here? Well, so when I was in San Francisco, my buddy Michihiro Haruta, he's in, he's the chef and owner of Crony in Japan or mm -hmm. in Tokyo now. Uh, we worked at Garnish Station together uh, in Norway, and he – you know, he obviously moved back to Tokyo. Um, I moved to San Francisco. And it's kind of when I, you know, at this point, I had already done Kano a couple times. And Mitchie was coming here to or to stage at Cezanne. And then he sent me a message. And I told him, uh, or like wanted to hang out once. And I asked him, you know, is there anything in the United States that you want to do? Um, he said skydive. <laughs> like shit like I don't want to jump out of a plane uh -huh. but yeah let's do it and so we were actually um we were doing a collaboration dinner together and then the day before the dinner we went skydiving and he told me that he was opening a restaurant in Tokyo and so I was like okay like and asked if I wanted to come out there and work and so I accepted and when I went out there um it was a, an amazing time and but within the first month my visa I had applied for my visa before I moved there and then once I got there, I was still applying. And I think it got denied like seven times or something. Oh, man. And I was like, all right, they don't want me here. And so Mitch kind of kept sending me to like other restaurants to try to have them apply for like, you know, that's why I ended up at Ryugan is because, you know, they're a three Michelin star ambassador for Japanese cuisine. And he's like, you know, it's an older restaurant. And he's like, these guys can get you, mm -hmm. you know. They'll uh, get you pushed along. Yeah, they'll get, yeah. they have a bigger pull on stuff like that. And uh, they still couldn't get my visa. So it was essentially at that point I just had to kind of throw in the towel and just appreciate the rest of the time that I had there. And um, I remember when I, I moved back to Omaha, I had a visa for Australia already, like, completed and accepted. And so I was actually supposed to go to Australia. And then, um, you know, I got home and, you know, I – so – Backtrack to San Francisco. I lived out of my truck for two and a half years, or sorry, two years while I was living there. So mm -hmm. um, everything I owned fit in a backpack. Uh, you know, I had this like really cool surf truck that, you know, had all my dirty clothes and clean clothes underneath. I'd, I had a gym membership where I'd go shower. And uh, so I was always kind of used to this nomadic lifestyle of like, don't buy any furniture, you know, keep it simple, be ready to get up and move at any time. And then when I got home, I think it kind of caught up with me that, like, it's really nice to have a garage mm -hmm. to park. Uh, it's really nice to have a front yard and a backyard. It's really nice to live in a home with a porcelain toilet and running water and mm -hmm. a bed and, you know, kind of the amenities that I, I think I sacrificed just because I knew it make my travels a <laughs> lot easier. But um, And so when I, I moved back, I think I was just kind of realizing – you know, I'm getting a little, not older by any means, but um, I was getting to the point where it's like, you want to start having investments. You want to start kind of figuring out what it, you know, you can't do that lifestyle forever. Um, and so I got back and uh, it was me, Kai and Colin, we were all working at, and our buddy Slim, Nick Reed, we were all, or they were all working at Via Frena. And so we went down there and um, it was just really cool. I think to cook with your brothers and you know, the buddy that you've played hockey with since you could walk. I mean, it was like a really cool experience to kind of sit there and like, and it was one time it's pizza and pasta and mm -hmm. carbs. Everybody loves it. Mm -hmm. And I think what I was starting to realize is, you know, like kind of the smaller things, the more like the things that really 
mean a lot to me, and that's, you know, family and uh, just cooking good food, you know, for normal people and not charging, you know, over $1,000 a head. And so I, yeah, I just decided to cancel Australia, and I just wanted to work with those guys. And then um, Dave Utterback reached out to me um, that he was opening Yoshitomo, and we had talked in Japan and stuff, and so, like, we, I had actually never worked with Dave. I um, really had only met him a couple times, and then when he told me he was doing his thing, uh, I was like, yeah, absolutely, I'd love to help you out. And so I helped him with, you know, Yoshitomo getting that up, and then I remember I was so lost on how to do sushi. Like, it was such a new experience to me. And then he's like, yo, so, like, when, when are you going to do, like, those Kano dinners again? And I was like, dude, I let me learn the menu, and then, like, I'll start thinking about, like, doing Kano dinners. And he kind of just kept bugging me to do them. And I was like, yo, I don't have anywhere to do it. Like, it's expensive to get space like that. I just – I don't really want to jump down that – and it's a lot. I mean, it's a lot of dedication. So I was like, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole again. And he's like – I'll let you use Yoshitomo for free. And I was like, all right. So I'll mm-hmm. do one. And I did one. And he's like, well, once the next one? Like, if you're going to do them, you got to, like, kind of keep the repetition, you know, build that kind of that following and be consistent. And I was like, well, can I do two a month then? And then it kind of just, like, slowly just – I mean, I'll, I'll give it all to Dave. Dave was really the one that kind of got me back He in gave this, you the push? Yeah. and Because mm-hmm. uh, I, I think at that point I was kind of – I don't know, like – you take a lot of abuse in those kitchens, mm-hmm. you know, like those big Michelin kitchens and stuff. It's uh, it's not all stars and accolades. I mean, it's a, it's hard mm-hmm. um, to say the least. And so I think I was just kind of like glad to have a normal job that I wake up, I clock in, I clock out. I don't have anxiety attacks before I go to bed. I'm not worried about a chef calling me, yelling at me about a cooler door not being spotlessly clean or something. You know, it was like it was nice just to like have a – normal life in a sense and then um but I think it was definitely I needed that push again to kind of like I love it you know at Mm -hmm. the same time like as much as I hated it I do love those kind of you know having a million things going on at once you know being creative working your ass off going from one job to another kind of thing so um yeah that's kind of what brought it back to Omaha and then I mean Honestly, like, I didn't think it was going to work in Omaha. I didn't think people were going to be willing to pay that much. And then once I saw that, like, we were selling. I mean, Dave and I sold out one dinner in, like, five minutes. Oh, my gosh. And, yeah, it was insane. And I was like, well, shit. I mean, if there's a demand, I guess, why not? And so that uh, that's what did it. So at what point did you see that demand really kick in? Like, I'm assuming the first dinner didn't sell out in five minutes. Mm-hmm. But, like, you know. Maybe the first couple of people, you know, it was kind of a curiosity. They didn't mm-hmm. really know what they were getting into. At what point was it like people know what Kano is, and this is becoming like once we put a dinner out, reservations are going fast. Um, honestly, I, th- I think it was just kind of like maybe the, th- I mean, I don't know, because I had kind of like not a client base here, but I mean, a lot of people have known me from boiler days or you know i mean i've made a lot of connections through where i've worked here in omaha and so i think once i came back i think that first dinner was like well you know and obviously people had seen kano from doing it in san francisco or doing the dinners in china or korea like people have seen the dinners happening so i think there's already a little bit of curiosity about them but you know i think it was after maybe the third or fourth dinner where it kind of really started like taking hold and then um Sarah Baker Hansen came out with a, a post about it and we got her approval, which was great. And so I think, you know, it kind of slowly started becoming, you know, now it's like we get random DMs about, hey, can you come do a private dinner for her? It's like mm-hmm. my mom's like, well, how do you know these people? I, I don't. Like they just hit me <laughs> up on Instagram. And uh, so I think, yeah, it was probably like third or fourth dinner when it really kind of started catching traction. And um, yeah. Now, we're kind of starting to run up against it on time here. So I have a million questions that I want to ask you. Mm -hmm. Like, there are so many things that we could talk about based off this conversation. But I want to make sure that we give people the opportunity. If they've listened to this conversation, they're like, I got to experience this Kano thing. This sounds awesome. I want to know more about it. Can you kind of 
tell us what the current state of Kano is, especially as we are in the middle of this pandemic. And if people are interested in hosting a Kano dinner or having you come out, how can they make that happen? Yeah. Um, so to book, um, you can reach out to Kane at Kano Omaha. It's K-A-N-O-O-M-A-H-A.com. Uh, and send me an email that is kind of like the easiest way. Or if you follow us on Instagram at Kano.Omaha, um, you can just DM us and we'll get back to you. Um, and I mean, really, that's kind of the easiest way right now. And that's kind of how we've been booking most of our, our bookings. Um, I think as far as the future of Kano goes, uh, we've been kind of not juggling, but I think we have a new idea of how we're going to do it. And I don't think it's going to be um, – Per usual with Kano stuff, it's not going to be like anything I think people around here have seen before. So I'm really excited to, if we can make it happen, um, I think people will be in for a real treat. So Well, that's awesome. But I mean, like, if somebody wanted to book a dinner right now, like, you're doing, like, private dinners yeah. in, like, people's homes and stuff yep. right now. This is different than doing it, like, hosting one, obviously, in a restaurant, probably. Right. Yep. Not going to happen at the time being. But, like, the current status is... If someone wants to have a Kano dinner, you'll come to their home. Yep. You will cook for them. Like, can you just kind of – because that's a concept that I think a lot of people don't understand. Can you kind of walk me through what that mm -hmm. looks like? And especially now, the safety precautions that you right. guys take to make sure that everything is, you know, uh, everything's good to go. Yeah. So, I mean, essentially the goal is with what we're doing right now is um, – and like with any dinner, we want to make sure you just feel like a guest. And um, at this time – we want to make sure you feel like a guest in your own home. So mm -hmm. really, I mean, it's funny because we'll go to people's homes and they're like, oh, can we, like, is there anything we need to do for you? And it's like, go have a cocktail, sit down on your couch, relax. Like, we've got it from here. And, I mean, we bring the glassware, the silverware, all the pots and pans, the cutting boards, the food, the water. I mean, the it's the whole, I mean, we're bringing, as long as you can provide a table with the chairs for the guest and some sort of cooktop range. Mm -hmm. If you don't have that, we've done dinners where uh, there's no cooktop. Like we bring the grill or the, the burners ourselves. But really, I mean, running water and a table and some chairs is all we need. And then we literally will have everything to do the dinner after that. So, I mean, we, we bring the whole show. Um, we set it up. We tear it down. We clean up. And then we're out that night. So... It's a really, I mean, we try to make it as all you have to do as a host is just, you know, pay the the um, deposit just to confirm the dinner and then I mean, sit back and enjoy. Exactly. Yep. So I love that. That's so cool. Well, it has been so much fun to have you on again today, Kane, and I'm really excited to hear about the future of Kano and, you know, this exciting concept that you talked about, what that might look like moving forward. Um Heck, we might have to do this again. We might have Absolutely. to do a round three sometime. Yeah. I, I'd love that. That'd be a, a huge blessing for the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, and it's been a pleasure to be here. All right. Omaha, as always, thanks for eating with us.